Hello and welcome back to The Mentors. This is Vadim. And Sergey. And we want to wish everyone that is listening to our show, whether you're a long-time listener or you just started listening in the last few weeks, a very, very happy holiday, whether it's Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa. Those are the only three I we know. Don't know. We don't know that many holidays. <laughs> we, we just both got haircuts in preparation for a trip that we're taking today. And our barbers are these Israeli Eastern European guys who we speak Russian to, of course. And they always have this amazing spread around the holidays of all sorts of different types of booze, whiskey, vodka, all sorts of little desserts they put out on the table. We got our haircuts at around noon, so we didn't partake in the shots, but we have in the past, and it was so hospitable, and we wanted to send the same kind of cheer to our listeners as our barbers graced us with today. So you're listening to this episode on Christmas Day, and whether you celebrate Christmas or not, hopefully you are with your family, because especially in America, everybody shuts down. There are no businesses open except for a few uh, and so, Chinese restaurants. And so most people do get to be with their family. But if you can't be with your family today and you do have to work, we are there with you. And hopefully you do have at least a little bit of time at the end of the day to wind down. Over the holiday season, we're going to be airing a number of rebroadcast episodes that we thought are really, really fitting at the end of this year. Because as you know, we have over 170 episodes on the show, and we know a lot of you have not had a chance to go all the way back through the catalog of episodes and to listen to some of the things that we've talked about in the past. So this week, we're starting off with something that we think is really fitting. And if you are a longtime listener, you probably heard our three-part series about our dad and our whole family called How to Do What You Love in a Communist Country. And part three of that three-part series was called How to Make It in America. In this part, which you can listen to by itself, of course, if you're curious, you can go back and listen to the others. But that third part talks about our immigration story, what it took to come to this country without knowing any English. Only one member of our family, our mom, knew English. And our parents, as adults, has to start all over And figure things out. And for us, it's an incredibly motivating story that continues to show us how much easier things are for us and for most of us living in Western modern life than it were for many of the people that had to make sacrifices to come to this country. Yet still, they were able to pick themselves up by the bootstraps and figure it out because those are the kind of opportunities that we get here. So this week, we're thinking a lot about our family, and hopefully you are as well as you're spending time with them. And that's why we decided to tell our family story of coming to America and how they continue to impress us to this day and how even that time of our life just will forever obviously live in our hearts, even though we were only eight and a half years old when we came to this country. This is one of our more popular episodes, so even just as a story, we think this is going to be something that's going to be interesting for you over this holiday season. And hopefully it'll act as a little bit of motivation for you during these holidays so that you start filling your brain with ideas for how you're going to come back in the new year and start creating the life that you want to lead in 2020 and beyond. We hope you enjoy this episode called How to Make It in America. Welcome back to The The Mentors. Mentors. This is Vadim. And Sergey. And we're back. Yes, Yes, we we are. are. That's why you're here. You're listening to us. Clearly, we're back. Otherwise, you'd hear nothing. You would hear dead air. 
just like that. Yeah. Uh, so we sound exactly the same, so if you can't tell the difference between our voices, tough luck. But we hope you enjoy the episode nonetheless. So, you're on with the mentors. This is a show where we tell stories about ordinary people that became extraordinary entrepreneurs despite lack of experience, money, or connections. And this is actually the third in a final part of a series talking about our late father, Samuel Zalmanovich Ryevzin. And so, if you're just tuning in for the first time, this actually episode can be listened to standalone. And if you like what you hear, you can go back and listen to part one and two of how to do what you love in a communist country. But this episode is a bit of a misnomer because we're actually going to be talking about what he did after we were forced to leave the Soviet Union in 1994 and we came to America and how he was able to succeed here and to sort of replicate some of the things that he did back in the Soviet Union. Well, and remember that if you listen to the last part, you will know that at the height of his career at 53 years old, uh, he actually was 54 years old, our family decided that we're going to pack all of our bags and move to the United States. So he had to start over in the United States speaking no English at all, um, which I think takes a lot of self-confidence and it takes a lot of what else with him? I don't know. Chutzpah? Chutzpah is something else. Uh, also, fear is a good motivator. Um, you know, our mother was getting threatening phone calls. They wanted to push my father out. There was an attempt made on his life. Uh, and, uh, you know, you, sometimes you just have to bite the bullet and make the decision and move on. And that's why, you know, there's an immigration issue right now in America where people are leaving countries where it's incredibly dangerous and this is their only escape. And so in, in some ways that was the case for us. We were fortunate that it was easier to come here at that time. And also we had a lot of family members here. But... You know, our parents still had to make the difficult decision to drop everything behind and, and come here. So this story starts in 1994. And believe it or not, in 1994, you could still smoke in a transatlantic flight on the plane, literally, when we were flying from Shannon, Ireland, our connecting flight, to the United States. There was smoke everywhere. Now, they had a non-smoking section, but they didn't do too much. And conveniently, after a six-hour journey... From Ireland, when the wheels touched down, almost exactly at that time, my favorite twinsie, Sergey, threw up everywhere. <laughs> it was a little embarrassing. Uh, I mean, I didn't care that much. I was sick, right? It was disgusting. There was smoke everywhere. And I remember the, the flight attendants were so nice to me and our family, even though the other passengers were visibly upset, not surprisingly. Uh, and all I could say was like, Thank you. Uh, thank you. Thank you. That's all the words. I think I said, I think please and thank you were the only phrases that Vadim and I knew in the English language back in 1994. And I'm sure my mom fed you, our mom fed you that line uh, conveniently. And um, to give you an idea of sort of uh, the, probably the transition that was happening, let's say in my father's mind, because for us kids, it was exciting. We were going on a trip across the world, you know, but for our dad, um, on the flight from Minsk, to Shannon, Ireland, so from Minsk, uh, Belarus, to Shannon, Ireland, um, even the pilots knew our father. Uh, that's how much prominence he had uh, in that country and even in, in a lot of the Soviet Union, uh, to the point where when we were landing in Shannon, Ireland, uh, because the pilots knew our father, they invited Sergey and myself to sit in the cockpit 
while we were landing in Ireland, which was probably the dumbest thing ever. It was incredibly uh, dangerous, I'm sure, but I still remember seeing the lights of the runway as we were landing. So here we are feeling like proper badasses. Little did we picture that uh, in a few days we would be sharing a two-bedroom, small two-bedroom apartment in Worcester, Massachusetts with, there was seven of us total, including our grandparents. And so um, (laughs) that little bit of pride is going to be, was going to be dashed pretty quickly. But for me, Abedim, coming to the United States made a big impression on us. Even when we got out of the airport, Logan Airport in Boston, in September in 1994. September 26th to be September 26th, 94. I just remember walking outside waiting for, it was our older brother who was already in the United States um, who was going to be picking us up and just seeing all the SUVs that were driving through, picking people up, picking passengers up. We basically never saw SUVs in, in Belarus. I Maybe think like one. One time I think I saw one and I was super excited. Uh, and I wanted to be a little known fact, a car designer when I was a kid, even though I knew nothing about it. Um, so I, I just was into cars and to see all these SUVs, we take it for granted here in the States. When we came here, it was noticeable. And even in the 90s, it was noticeable how many people would drive Jeeps. So for us, it was an exciting time, even though we also spoke no English. For us, it was exciting. For our dad, um, even sort of that staple moment where he was leaving Belarus behind and the people that he knew behind, including those two pilots that led us into the cockpit and now entering this new country, probably a bunch of cool SUVs weren't that exciting. It was it was more daunting. And especially when we were living in that two-bedroom apartment um, just a few days later, all seven of us, it was tough. Now, we were lucky. Uh, we had family here. We got support from the community. There was furniture that was donated, clothes that was donated. We were more or less taken care of, um, and we were able to find resources through the friends that we had. But by no means was it easy. And you might think that, well, your father was so successful in Belarus, didn't you guys? Like, why did seven of you live in a two-bedroom apartment? Didn't you guys have money? Well, first of all, remember that there's a limit to how rich you can be in a Soviet country unless you were willing to steal or take bribes, which our dad was not willing to do. And in fact, we did do pretty well there. My dad had a driver. He was making a decent salary as a principal of a school. Uh, but when you converted rubles to dollars at that point in time, it was very little. Uh, and you know they knew that they weren't going to be able to get jobs right away and they had a big family to support, so you couldn't just go off and spend money right away. Um, so in fact, we, we didn't have that much money when we came here. It was, it was very little enough just to pay rent for, for a few months, uh, maybe buy groceries and things like that on a weekly basis, but really, uh, try hustling to get jobs pretty quickly. My mom actually at that point knew, must've known that a lot of the burden would be on her shoulders because she was one of the only ones in our family that spoke English fluently. Um, one of our older brothers who also shared an apartment with us also spoke English and he went and got a job very quickly. But uh, it wasn't an easy beginning by any means. So me and Sergey, the beautiful blondes that we were, were excited about just about anything. <laughs> uh, so for example, You're really making us sound like super sexy, like mid '90s blondes. Uh, they can't see us, so they won't know. Okay, um, but. <laughs> You know, little things like being able to go to the grocery store, we would fill up our uh, grocery cart with hundreds of dollars worth of shopping. Now, this was for seven people, obviously, but still. And there were fruits from every single season you could imagine. We didn't have that in Belarus. We'd have to wait in line for butter sometimes if it wasn't available because butter was seasonal. Uh, Or, you know, get banana, like five bananas once a year, and that would be sort of uh, an exciting moment for us in Belarus. But here, we were just being, me and Sergey were excited 
about just about everything. And I'm sure for our parents on the flip side was, okay, but we have to spend all this money on groceries. And now, obviously, we have to figure out how to make a living. And so, Sergey's right. Our mom's ability to speak English clearly, uh, a lot of burden fell on her. And so, she probably was the first one to get a job, right? Um, this was a woman that, again, was a successful educator, uh, formerly an assistant principal, taught English as a foreign language in the Soviet Union, but obviously came here without having all the necessary licenses that it takes to become a teacher, which can take years to, to get. And so even though she knew English, uh, the options were limited. And so she had to get a job uh, at a nursing home taking care of an elderly woman. But she had to swallow her pride and provide for the family. And similarly, our dad, uh, you know, when he was actually in Belarus, and we mentioned in our last episode that he had education leaders and ministers from all over the world come and visit him to learn about his model. He remembers having American educators come and tell him, hey, if you ever come to the States, let us know. But when he got here, it became very clear that uh, he needed to learn English in order to get any kind of job in, in the education field. Even as even as an advisor to other educators and educator, education reformers. And so at first he thought, well, let me spend a couple of years learning English. But as a 53-year-old, he realized that was going to be very difficult. And then what's going to happen? How are we going to support the family while he's learning English? So he decided to basically table that uh, and potentially never do education again. Uh, but instead, uh, he he had to figure out how to get a job, or how to get paid, any kind of job, no matter what it took. And so one of the first jobs that he had was uh, pumping gas, working for a Russian guy at a gas station right outside of Worcester, Massachusetts. PhD from Soviet Belarus, who's used to giving lectures to hundreds, if not thousands of people and has books written in the libraries in Moscow, is pumping gas. Uh, at a gas station. So you have to have a healthy uh, amount of self-confidence and self-awareness to not get super depressed in that situation and just bite the bullet and do this stuff. Literally 365 days earlier when he was flying all over the Soviet Union, you know, giving talks, uh, he noticed uh, a documentary. One of the documentaries that was made about him was playing at the airport. Uh, so to go from that to maybe maybe it was a year and a half later at this point, but pumping gas at a gas station, of course, uh, would be tough for anybody. But both my father and uh, our father and our mother, they had a tough skin. And they had sort of one primary goal in mind, which is, okay, we have these two young kids. We just got them out of the Soviet Union because it was no longer safe for us to be there. Now you have to work. That's the only thing you can do. So they had to regress, so to speak, and uh, swallow their pride, and both my parents took on jobs that were obviously uh, not ideal and not what they envisioned themselves doing when they came to America, given their education, what they've been able to achieve. But somehow, still, despite all that, within six years of moving to America, we were moving into a 4,000-square-foot house in the suburbs uh, where our dad at this point was running a business with three locations that would end up putting us through university. So how do we get there, Sergey? Let's let's talk through that story. Yes, so there's a lot to unpack here. Um, so six short years, we were moving into this, this big house, and our mom was a full-time English teacher. Our dad had a business he was operating. Um, he didn't necessarily, neither of them knew that they were going to be able to accomplish that, but obviously that's the American dream. When they came to the States, they were like, you know, two-car garage, 
a big house, living in the suburbs. That's what, especially growing up in the Soviet Union, if you hear about America, that's sort of the unattainable thing that you think you're never going to get. Um, but they had to get there through baby steps and through buckling down essentially and working. So for our dad, that was um, after he was working at the gas station for about a year, through a family friend, he happened to hear about uh, an opportunity to work at a kiosk in a new mall that was opening in central Massachusetts. Huge step up already, by the way, because now he was didn't have to freeze his butt off pumping gas outside. He could be indoors. So yeah. I guess that was a plus. That was a big selling factor. Uh, and this gentleman that owned a kiosk in the mall, you know, you know those kiosks where uh, you could go and get your photo on a t-shirt, mug, mouse pad. There was a Russian guy that was operating a kiosk like that in, in a local mall. And he hired my dad because my dad was cheap. Um, even though his English was basically non-existent. Um, he could see that he could learn quick and at least he could do the operational stuff. Right, so for that gentleman, the incentive was our father was uh, cheap labor, uh, and also obviously our father was this uh, organizer from the Soviet Union, clearly a reliable person, clearly a lot of skills to bring to the table. It was a no-brainer. Uh, and how long did he work there, Sergey, until he got the idea that he wanted to own that business? Yeah, uh, you know, I don't think he grew up dreaming to own a kiosk in the mall, but that's the opportunity that he had in front of him and that he saw that he could grab. Um, essentially, he worked there for six months. He saw that the guy wasn't managing the business in the way that he would. And at that point, it had been two years since we came to the States. It was 1996, and he had saved up about $8,000. And so he just offered the guy cash. He said, listen, um, I don't know how much you want to sell this business for, but I have eight grand I can give you. Obviously, kind of a leap of faith there that that business would even be able to grow. And uh, the gentleman came back to him and he said, well, you know what? I actually, it turns out that I have been trying to get out of this business. It's not that interesting for me, but I can't sell it to you for less than, I think it was $12,000. So my dad had to come up with four grand. And he knew that coming up with that money was going to take some time. And he didn't want to get in debt with any of his um, you know, friends or family that were here in the States. So he essentially, uh, using his entrepreneurial creativity in a similar way that he did in the Soviet Union, he told the guy, okay, $8,000 cash right now. I'll work for you for free for the next several months. And uh, and then you can give me the business. So I think it was four months. I'll work for you for free. And then on top of this cash, the business becomes mine. And luckily, the guy agreed. And, you know, for our father, the reason why he was persistent and, and he saw this as the way sort of to move forward is uh, he didn't want to wait for the next business opportunity to come or the next opportunity to purchase a business. Uh, he didn't know what else would be successful. And here he had spent already a considerable amount of time working at that business, learning the ropes having some ideas himself on how he can innovate, just like he did in education when he was a teacher, getting ideas on how to innovate within education. And so there was a lot of work that was already done, and he wanted to kind of skip some levels and just own a business as quickly as possible. And um, with purchasing this business, he got immediate access to supplier-vendor relationships and all the deals that have been negotiated with them, so low, low uh, supplier uh, prices with suppliers. He uh, got free access to the proprietary software that was used to, you know, take those images and, and turn them into uh, images that could be printed onto transfer paper, which right now sounds easy to do. And you can order a picture with your, uh, a mug with your picture on it from walmart.com really easily. But back then, nobody was really doing it. It was very novel. And even to this day, you can't get it done within 15, 20 minutes where this business allowed you to 
immediately get sort of instant gratification for that kind of product. He, in the 90s, it was a good market. It was a good product. It was a good market. And he also got access to all the equipment, cameras, printers, pre- hot presses that would be used to put pictures on mugs, mouse pads, t-shirts. I still remember that the price of a small mug is $16.95 and a large one is $21.95. That'll be printed in my head forever. But basically for him, it was it was a good deal and it was worth working for free because he already knew immediately how quickly and how much money he could make back once he was the one that was operating that business. But again, and you won't be surprised if, about this if you heard part one and part two of this series, he didn't run this business in the same way that others would. Uh, this type of business had already been around for probably about a decade and most of them were owned by uh, people that essentially sort of sat sat on the kiosk, sat at the chair and waited for others to come and order a mug or a t-shirt or a mouse pad and really didn't try to improve the business beyond that at all. For him, it, he was constantly thinking about improvements and constantly thinking about growth of the business. Does Despite the fact that he couldn't really speak English, he could still observe and he still had, had, figured, had to figure out how to deal with customers and he, he was constantly making changes and improving the business. Uh, to be clear, he did learn enough conversational English to be able to talk to a customer, take orders and everything like that. Uh, from a very early age, though, we were enlisted to, to deal with some of the stuff like talking to vendors and, uh, well, it was basically our dad yelling at us and telling us, okay, this is what you should tell them to, to get a better price or why aren't they delivering on time or whatever it was. And at 11 years old, you might not want to do it. We certainly didn't. And me and Sergey would argue over who would have to deal with the next uncomfortable conversation. But it certainly helped us develop the thick skin um, and, and kind of think and understanding how our father thought. So some ways that he ran this business in a different way than than his competitors at other shopping malls, um, instead of sitting and waiting for customers to come, he would proactively come up to every single customer that was sort of looking around his different products. He would actually snap pictures of people as they were walking by so that a parent could, could see like their kid on a TV screen and that would get them excited. So he would draw customers in. Um, what else did he do with him? He uh, also you know, always wanted to come up with ideas for a new product. So he would, on the weekends, uh, once he started hiring employees and he had some free time, he basically never used that free time. It was crazy. Uh, You know, we wanted to hang out on the weekends, but our dad would be like, nope, we're getting in the car and we're driving to a different mall, um, you know, like an hour away somewhere in Massachusetts to see what kind of uh, products they sold. And then once we got to the mall, guess what? Our dad would force us to come up with him to the kiosk, pretend that we're customers, find out what the prices were so that he could figure out um, if if the prices were competitive or if he should adjust his prices at all. So uh, if you ever read the story of Sam Walton, he did the same exact thing when he started his uh, Walmart, which I think initially was a hardware store, right? Um, he would literally fly to different locations at some point and uh, do the same exact thing. Look at the products, see which ones were doing well, and then bring that back to his stores. So our dad was doing stuff like that too, secret shopping, uh, looking for places to get ideas, inspiration, understanding pricing, proactively talking to customers uh, to figure out what they liked and what part, why they were buying the products, uh, and then you know making changes and iterating on this brick-and-mortar business. And he was also simultaneously nurturing the relationships in the mall uh, of the management um, so that they liked him, essentially. He would make sure he paid his bills on time. He would meet with the leadership once in a while. 
And that way, when the, when he saw that somebody was leaving an empty, essentially, when, when one vendor was leaving a kiosk, he would jump on the opportunity, try to negotiate a low rent for that kiosk, and he already had a list of products that he wanted to test and try. Uh, and for example, he would sign up for a holiday season. That's one of the best seasons to, to test products, uh, and, uh, and one of the seasons where you make the most money. He would sign up for a holiday season and basically launch new kiosks, launch new products. And speaking of the holidays, that's where Vadim and I, every single winter break, we would spend working with our father, our family. Our older brother actually met his wife-to-be because my dad hired her through a family friend connection. And we would spend literally 12 hours a day working at the kiosk, making orders, coming back home, and preparing for the following day. And obviously, he bared the burden of that, especially in the holidays. He would be working nonstop around, that, around the clock because he knew he had to provide. But, you know, obviously he knew he could trust his family and that's why we all went through our dad's education and worked uh, at uh, at his jo- at his um, business. And ironically enough, we all, most of us went through his school too. So we got education uh, in, in Belarus from his school and also in his business. Um, but also he knew he could trust his family. And um, the only one other thing that he did that was probably a little bit different is he only hired people through word of mouth exactly for that reason, to make sure that he brings on people that he could trust. So family friends would introduce employees to him. Many of our high school friends worked there as well. And that doesn't mean he sat there idly. He still would check on people. One one time, you know, he stayed late in the mall and kind of, um, well, let's face it, he spied on the person that that, that he that was working for him, and uh, he caught them stealing, you know. And uh, the woman uh, felt really bad, and she ended up working for free, I think, for like three weeks to make up for that. Um, but still, you know, even though he focused on that process of only bringing on people that you can trust through word of mouth, he still um, made sure he crossed the T's and dotted the I's. The moral of that story is that no one is going to care about your business in the way that you do. And if he hadn't cared enough to check on his employees, double, triple check, uh, then he would have just had massive losses and he wouldn't know where they're coming from because people were stealing. So he cared more than anybody else, obviously, about that business. Also, uh, what really helped, uh, and this is incredibly important when you're starting a company, is the support of your immediate family. And of course, in our case, it was our mom. Um, You know, with a business like this, it's very unpredictable. Uh, The revenues are very cyclical. Sometimes you have great cash flow. Sometimes you're taking that cash flow, dumping it into inventory. To give you an idea, um, in the holidays around Christmas time, we could sometimes make four or $5,000 in a day versus a normal day it's a good day if you make one or 200 bucks sometimes you make nothing in a in a whole day because people are not really shopping on a tuesday uh, in january so incredibly cyclical in that regard right and so when we got to america our mom quickly got all of the licenses that she needed to teach english uh, and actually other subjects as well at one point while the business was running uh and sort of we were comfortably going through school living in that very nice house uh, that our parents were able to get. Uh, our mom was working a full-time job teaching um, three different subjects that she would teach in one day uh, to one group. 
and she would have to wake up at five in the morning to drive to that school because it was an hour away and then come up with uh, the curriculum and the content on the fly, uh, but usually she would prepare the day before, um, and teach kids on multiple different subjects. And by the way, these kids didn't speak very good English. Uh, she was an ESL teacher. And the way they hired her, she had to travel to different schools also. So in the same day, she would have to go to two or three different schools. So it was just a crazy day. Vadim is actually teaching right now an entrepreneurship course where it's a very intensive uh, five-week course, and all day he's spending with the students. So he's teaching from 9 a.m. to uh, 3 p.m., 4 p.m. sometimes. And this is actually waking us up a little bit to how hard it is to be a teacher because not only are you in school all day teaching, but you got to prepare for the next day, and then you got to do grading. We're not even taking that into account. So teachers need to get paid more. That's maybe a, a, a conversation for another episode. But props to my mom for really having the steady paycheck uh, when we had a lot of the unsteady revenues coming in and out of that business. So eventually, uh, this business expanded. Uh, and uh, our dad found a few other products through that process of secret shopping, figuring out what people want, talking to customers, launching and testing during the holidays uh, that allowed him to expand the the business. And it literally put us through college uh, and allowed us to live in the suburbs through high school and makes amazing friends and friendships that uh, we still have to this day. So, uh, you know, part of it, of course, was having the support from the family. Uh, part of it was being willing to take risks and probably the biggest uh, aspect of this was being willing to do the hard work that nobody else would be willing to do in this situation. I have to say that I think another aspect of all of this, it, when I think through the these last couple episodes that we talked about our dad, including this final chapter uh, of his career, uh, which was starting over in America at 53, he had a lot of intellectual curiosity. He was curious about everything. Uh, in Belarus, it was easy because he loved education, and so his curiosity fueled him and made him one of the top educators and educational reformists in the country. In America, I think had he started, uh, just like everybody else, you know, in his 20s, his career, and actually done things that he loved, he would have been a billionaire. I, I almost, I have no doubt. But here, even though he was working on a business that was intrinsically pretty boring, a shopping mall business, and he would tell us how sometimes he would spend days in the mall, it'd be so damn boring. But he found a way to stimulate his curiosity by trying new things, by going out there and seeking information, talking to other uh, immigrants that were starting businesses, and really just feeding off of that. So I, th I do think that one uh, important trait of any successful entrepreneur is this innate curiosity about life and how to get things done. You know, a lot of people uh, wait for motivation or some kind of intrinsic feeling of passion to strike, to actually start doing the hard work. That's one lesson we're learning from our father, even through this experience, is he never waited for some kind of passion. He saw opportunities and took them. And if it worked out, great. And if not, he would adjust, course correct, and then continue doing the hard work. Uh, he didn't need to wait to get motivated. Now, of course, there was some motivation there, which is I have to provide for my family. But still, it didn't matter if he loved the work he still got up every single day for 25 years after coming to america and went to work in that shopping mall to support the family so if you feel stuck you feel like you don't have that motivation that you've been seeking try by forcing yourself i guess for for lack of a better term to to have more interest in what you're doing try 
to get better at what you're doing, even if it's a job that you don't necessarily like. Because once you start getting better, once you get more interested, that's going to sort of be a snowball effect and make you more interested, make you better at what you're doing. And you're going to ultimately do better at the job. And I will also say that um, we talk a lot about in in the intro of this episode, in the intro of The Mentor Show, we always say uh, we talk about successful entrepreneurs who succeeded despite one of the things being experience. We've talked to many, many people that had no experience in the industry that they were starting a business in or no experience in ever starting a business, yet they were able to succeed. So don't let inexperience stop you from trying something. I mean, when our dad came here, he didn't even know how the credit system worked. There was no such thing as credit cards and loans in Belarus. Uh, So he had to figure out what a credit card meant and and apply that to his business. And he really just learned that stuff on the fly by throwing himself in it. So you do have to have a, a little bit of confidence in yourself, I think, to do that. But please don't let experience or lack thereof stop you from doing the thing that you think you want to do and try and get better at. So try to take interest in something. If you're not 100% excited about either the job that you have, like Sergey said, try to take interest in just being better every day at maybe part of the job or take on new responsibilities and focus, laser focus on becoming better at that. The thing is, you can't plan for every little thing in life. You know, sometimes even when you're at the top of your game, even when you're at the pinnacle of success, whatever that might mean to you, things don't work out or things come crashing down. And by taking the time now to restructure your thinking and understanding that it's more about just being better and working hard, you'll be prepared for any inevitabilities that life might throw your way. And you'll be a better entrepreneur, you'll be a better person, and you'll feel better about life and yourself. We sincerely hope that you enjoyed this three-part series about our late father, Samuel Rebson, who is by far one of our greatest inspirations and heroes when we think about entrepreneurship, but really just in our day-to-day lives when we want to be better human beings. And uh, go back and listen to the show. If you get discouraged because something's not working, go back and listen uh, and hopefully This drives home the fact that if you're having a bad day, if you're having a bad year, it probably is equally as bad and maybe worse for somebody else. And it certainly was at many points for our father who survived multiple heart attacks to actually get through what he had to get through. Um, But there is a light at the end of the tunnel. Focus on today and making yourself better today. So to close out, we want to say thank you, dad. Thank you, mom. Find in your life uh, people that have kind of helped you to get here and thank them and try to learn lessons uh, from them that can help you be better. We are the mentors. Until next time.